Good. Good morning, everybody. Cool. We are continuing in our sermon series, uh, looking at the book of Daniel, and we've titled it uh, Faithfulness in Exile, or Faithful in Exile. Could, could go either way. Uh, Faithful in Exile. And as we're uh, this morning we're going to look. We're going to carry on looking at chapter one. Josh started us off last week in chapter one, sort of setting the scene, kind of setting the tone uh, of the of the story. Uh, and I'm going to continue looking a little bit more in detail at this chapter. So that's where we'll be this morning. Um, but before we begin, uh, I'll tell you there's a a little illustration that might help us this morning. There's a, a police officer's exam police officer's exam, they had a question, uh, just one question to write, and the question went something like this, Uh, you are on patrol when you hear a loud explosion in a nearby street. When you arrive, you discover that a house is on fire, and a passerby tells you that there's someone trapped in the building and needs rescue. But at the same time, you notice that the explosion has caused a car to swerve off the road and into a river and is sinking fast. Just at that moment, Uh, 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 a helpful passerby comes out, a motorist says, hey, can I help you? And you realize this is someone wanted for armed robbery. And then suddenly a man runs out of a building, a nearby building and says, my wife is expecting a baby. The shock of the explosion has caused her to go into early delivery. And then the examination question concluded saying, describe in a few words the actions you would take, what would you do? Well, the trainee officer thought for a moment, picked up their pen and wrote, I would take off my uniform and I would mingle quietly with the crowd. In other words, I'll pretend I'm not a police officer. Sometimes as Christians, we can feel uh, a, a pressure to kind of take off the uniform as it were and to mingle unobtrusively. It can be t- it, there can be times in our life where being a Christian means that we stand out. It means looking different, acting different, behaving in different ways. And that uh, shouldn't surprise us. We live in a world, and Christians have always lived in a world where culture is going in a different direction to the one uh, that we're going in. We can see that... Uh, there's going to be times when uh, our faith marks us out. I think of, um, I moved out to Gothenburg about nine years ago, and when I went, I work as a teacher in a school, but that wasn't the reason I came. I came to be part of starting this church. I was a church planter, and, uh, and so that was the reason I came. And then I'm in the staff room, and people say, so, why'd you come to Sweden? And of course, they're expecting, married a Swede, come for work. I work at Volvo, but, you know, one of the top three. Um, and uh, the look of surprise I get when I say, well, actually, I, I came to be part of planting a church and tell, start telling my story. You can imagine uh, that this receives different um, reactions from enthusiasm. I've had that, polite um, interest to polite disinterest to... Uh, eye rolls, downright skepticism to aggressive questions, which I think is fair enough. Um, I think we have a responsibility to, uh, to stand up for our faith and to, uh, to be able to talk about it. 
But it does mean that at times it feels like a bit of a burden and it can be difficult to live in this world and, uh, and stand firm in our faith. And that's the story of Daniel in a nutshell, is how do you live in a way that is uh, faithful to what we believe, to our identity as Christians, uh, and yet live in a culture and a world that is different or that isn't going in the same direction, or doesn't feel the same things, or believe the same things? How do we live in a world with that kind of uh, challenge? And this morning I want to look, as we look at Daniel, and we look at this first chapter, we look at this story, we're going to see three things. We're going to see that Daniel and his friends, they don't shy away from the culture that they're in, but rather they dig in. We're going to see that they uh, realize that in digging in, there's difficult choices, but they stand firm in what they believe. And we're going to see that ultimately they take courage. They have faith. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So as we look at digging in, uh, can we open up our Bibles? We're going to read the first seven verses of chapter one. Uh, I'm reading from the NIV and the verses should appear behind us. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. And the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Four, uh, wait, that's verse four. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned for them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So it's easy to look at the story of Daniel, and I've heard it preached this way many times, as a story of how to um, stand firm in a, in a culture that opposes you. And of course, that's part of the story. That is, as we see through the chapters, what happens is uh, Daniel and his friends find themselves coming up against opposition as they stand firm for what they believe in a culture that doesn't believe what they believe. That is part of the story. But it's not the whole part. It's not the whole thing. Because actually, um, there's a real sense in which Daniel and his friends uh, engage with and uh, dig into the culture that they're in. But sadly, it's, it's actually a real tendency. It's something that we see in, uh, in all walks of life for all people do this, where we like to define ourselves in small groups, and then we like to push out those that look different to us. And for Christians over the years, where they've looked at a world that's different, thinking differently, feeling differently, acting differently to what they believe to be 
God's will or believe to be right, the right way to live, so often Christians withdraw from culture. A stereotypical example could be the Amish in America who, shunning technological advancements, want to live in small communes and do things their way and behave uh, the way that they want to. Um, and, and that might be uh, one example. But other examples can be in communities where you, you have little Christian bubbles and you know, you're kind of really only ever there for that little thing that you're doing shunning the culture and, uh, and, and not willing to engage with or kind of have any uh, communication or relationship with the world in which we're living in today. I think in the Middle, in the Middle Ages, Middle Ages? Medieval Ages, um, it was monks and nuns in monasteries cloistering themselves off so that they could remain holy and pure and, and not be seen touching the dirty world. I think that's a bit of a caricature of that, but partly that might have been the motivation. But before we look at the ways in which Daniel and his friends do stand firm, you've got to notice the things that they embrace. Actually, the culture that they say yes to, the way that they engage with the world that they're sent to. You see, Daniel and his friends are from Israel. They're from Judah, it says, and, so they, were, and they were from the capital, Jerusalem. And there is, it, it, the story of Daniel takes place right at the end, chronologically, of uh, the Bible. So you, uh, the Old Testament, sorry. If you're reading through the Old Testament, Daniel's like in the middle and to the right a little bit. But chronologically, it's right at the end of the story. There's only a few books that come kind of after, Ezra and Nehemiah being examples of that. But Daniel's right at the end. And so there's this whole history of culture and heritage and tradition and, uh, and, and as well as that, uh, a relationship with God who set up Jerusalem and Judah to be his people. And now we're in this story where Jerusalem's fallen. Nebuchadnezzar has, has raided the city. He's taken the brightest and the best and he's removed them to Babylon, and it's just the start of the exile. Many, many, many more people will be removed from their home and uh, re, uh, repositioned elsewhere in the Babylonian kingdom. It's easy to think that Daniel and his friends could say, we will have nothing to do with this evil regime. We'll have nothing to do with this horrible king and his culture that's come in. They worship pagan gods. They practice witchcraft. They practice uh, sacrificing to you know, people and children to other gods. Their culture, they say they're the most sophisticated. They're the most well-educated. And yet they behave in this kind of a way will have nothing to do with it. It would be easy for Daniel and his friends to do that, but they don't. For us today, um, we, we might look, we're in a very different situation. We're not in Babylon, are we? Um, we're, we're in Gothenburg, we're in Sweden, we're in the post-Christian West, the secular West, as, as it were, and some of the things that um, 
I could write a long list of some of the things that we need to engage with sensitively as we think about the culture that we live in and how we're going to engage with it. But just two things that are uh, big themes, big cultures, that, that big uh, ideas that find their way into all of our culture is materialism. The idea that the material world is all that there is. And if we believe that, then it makes perfect sense that to be happy and to live life and to be successful, then getting lots of material things, all the brightest and the best material things, is obviously the way to live. If this is all there is, then the way I show success is by having the best of those things. The way I show uh, that I'm fulfilling my duties as a human being is to, um, to play by the rules of materialism. To really live is to have the best and the new. Or what about individualism? The idea that really, at our core, the most important thing is to know yourself, to find yourself, and to be who you really are deep down. That that means pursuing your desires and your feelings, even over and above the thoughts and feelings and desires of other people, sometimes to the expense of others. Because after all, all you've got is you. Now, we do live in a material world, so it's not wrong to think about material things. We have to have stuff to get to work, might need to travel, public transport might not be an option, you might need a car. Technology, all of these things, it's, it's not wrong, it's how we engage with it, though, that's important. We are also individuals, that's true, and we do have thoughts and feelings, and we should look after ourselves and keep ourselves healthy physically, mentally, socially, uh, and spiritually. That's true, it's important. But we again need to engage with these aspects of our culture and ask, do, how far do we go? Where do we draw the lines? How do we take what we understand to be true in our culture, the things that are good, and how do we understand them in light of what God says is good with what we read in scripture. Ultimately, our conviction as Christians is that the God of the universe who created us and made us knows us best. And so if we believe that he speaks to us, he speaks to us through his word and in community through the Holy Spirit speaking to us, if we believe that, then we believe that he's got our best in our minds and that he knows us best, then we're gonna trust what he says. That requires discernment. It's not easy. But it's, that's life. And if we want to be successful and to thrive in life, we take on this challenge. And that's the challenge of Daniel and his friends as they do so. But let's look at what they said yes to. They said yes to pagan names. They said yes to a, a pagan education. And they said yes to pagan positions of power, government positions. They were... They were Happy is probably not the right word, but they, weren't, they didn't feel compromised to do those things. And we know that because they did feel compromised to do something else, which we'll read about in a little bit. But uh, before you put the next slide, I think the next slide is some pictures. Don't put that one up yet. Does anyone remember, without looking at their Bibles, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's Hebrew names were? Ollie? Give that man 10 points. Fantastic. Whew. Somewhat. I take those points back. You did. He, I should say he looked me right in the eyes, but you're right. Well done, Jobin. I like it. Well done. We should have got that slide off. Ah. 
dang it. Yeah, I've, I've made it my life's mission this week to remember their names uh, because it's, it seems harsh to me uh, that Daniel gets referred to by his Hebrew name throughout the whole book and yet very quickly we uh, lose sight of their Hebrew names and we remember them by their Babylonian names. And I, no one knows why this is, but the, a good theory might be that Daniel is the hero of the story. It's a Hebrew story written to the Hebrew people, and so it's important for him to retain his Hebrew name in the narrative so as to keep um, the hero alive, uh, whereas perhaps Shadrach, or Hananiah, Azariah, and uh, Mishael are more secondary characters. We can refer to them by their Babylonian names, uh, and then that also helps set the narrative that they were, in fact, in Babylon and happy to take Babylonian names, which clearly Daniel is too, because he is referred as Belteshazzar many times in the story by Babylonians. What? And we had a great discussion uh, on Wednesday in our small group about the importance of names, because I don't, I come from a culture that's like, oh, you name your kid whatever you want, and people do. We see celebrity names all the time that are really quite extraordinary. Uh, I can't remember what Elon Musk has named his child, children, uh, but some of those names are fascinating. You should Google them. But names are important in any culture we discovered uh, on, on Wednesday. How in different cultures for different reasons and in different ways. It's still important to us today. And that was true in, uh, in Daniel's day. Uh, and so Daniel and his friends, they had these beautiful Hebrew names that celebrated their relationship and their connection to God. You can put, there we go, God is my judge, Yahweh has shown me grace, who is like God, and Yahweh has helped, their, uh, what their names meant. And they were, uh, it, it didn't seem to them to be a compromise for them to, to get new names. Perhaps it was convenient. Perhaps it didn't matter so much. Perhaps they kind of felt it was the prudent thing to do. But before you think, well, I mean, they were fearful for their lives. Again, the story time and time again shows us that they didn't fear much for their lives at any point as they regularly put their lives in jeopardy, standing up to what they believed to be true and standing firm in their convictions. So clearly they didn't feel that this was one of those issues, whereas we might feel that this was a line to draw. But yes, they do receive uh, new names. You can pop the next slide up. Uh, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't know what those names mean. You'll go online and you'll find some very confident bloggers tell you exactly what they mean in Babylonian. But the fact is, the archaeology isn't there. It could be, and it's most likely, something to do with Babylonian gods. But we're not fully sure. But then I don't think the author of Daniel really minds that much. It's not a big point of the a big point. Either way, they receive Babylonian names. Um, you know, it's kind of like uh, my friend Dewey has got a Welsh name, Dewey. The English word for Dewey is Dave, but we don't call him Dave. It could be offensive to call him Dave because his name's Dewey, and now all of a sudden their names are changed. It's just beside the point. They uh, accept these names. The next thing that we see they accept is a pagan education. Again, the Babylonian um, curriculum it was, the, it was the, the center of learning. It's kind of where the, the birth of mathematics and science actually comes from the region around there and surely um, gets this uh, kind of star in the melting pot of cultures that came in as these great kingdoms of Babylonia first and then Persia um, bring in a wealth of smart people in and, and get them all learning. But... It's worth saying that this is a, an education unlike what we receive at Shalmers. It's 
totally permeated and saturated with explicit religious, cultic practices, sacrificing to various different gods and living in a way as to revere and worship uh, Babylonian deities, Babylonian gods. And we see that again throughout the story. That's like every other conflict from now on is all about uh, other gods. And so uh, you, we might think today that, you know, oh, if we go to this university or if we go to this place, this place has got kind of liberal, secular vibes. I won't go there. It might taint me with their philosophies and worldviews. I don't know what the equivalent is in modern day culture. I feel like I could easily offend someone, but it's equivalent of like going to the most opposite their views. That's where they've gone as their university. That's where they've been put into. And they accept this, a three year masters in Babylonian literature, language, religion, and culture. They don't feel that this compromises them. They don't back away from that. They're firm in their convictions. They can do this and yet stay true to what they believe. They can go there and engage with the culture. In fact, I wish more Christians would go to and be part of institutions where they come up against different viewpoints. We shouldn't be fearful of what the world says. We should be in there and a voice amongst it saying, well, actually, we feel like God has this to say. We feel like this is true too. And we need to look at and have an open dialogue. Far from separating off into different camps, we need to have open and kind and humble and honest discussions. We can't do that if we're not in the institutions where the conversations are happening. A big, big, big driving force here in the text is that people, the people of God, are now finding themselves in positions and places of influence and power. That's exactly where Christians need to be, in places of influence, where we can speak into the cultural uh, conversations and agendas of the day. Not to just bring it down and criticize it, not like some sort of like inside agent but openly and honestly saying, well, we have maybe, on these things we agree, but here maybe there's just a better way. Maybe there's some wisdom here that we can bring, engaging with the culture. And finally, we notice that they say yes to positions in government, positions of power. Again, Christians don't need to retreat from the world or denounce secular learning. There's much good we can do when we engage positively with our culture. The key is not to compromise where it matters. And I think where Daniel and his friends get this, uh, they get a faith that they're not compromising in this, a big part of that could be from Jeremiah 29. The prophet speaking kind of before the exile, just before, he speaks into and, and, and says some promises, prophetic promises from God to the people who are going to be in exile. And he says this in verse 29, chapter 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and daughters, give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because 
if it prospers, you too will prosper. We're to engage in our culture. We're to dig into the world around us. We're to dig in where we are. And I felt uh, specifically that there might be people here, and I think Josh touched on this last week uh, really helpfully, this idea of a 10-year plan. People have, you know, we set ourselves a, a goal in our mind, and then we find ourselves kind of, I don't know, year eight, thinking this isn't where I thought I would be. This isn't what I planned. And that can really cool down our sense of responsibility and, and our desire to engage with and to do and to be in our world and to work with all that we've got. But there will be some of us here that perhaps didn't come to Gothenburg for themselves. Maybe you followed a partner or maybe you came with a job but that's not the job you've got anymore or maybe that didn't work out and so now you find yourselves here and you're kind of wondering, feel like perhaps you're in limbo but I believe the message here, neither, none of these guys, Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, had planned this. This wasn't their 10-year plan to be here. But they engage. They dig in. They pull their sleeves up and they say, right, we'll get to work. We will be involved. And they don't just get involved, but they do good. And they're noticed and they're seen. And people say, do you know what? Oh, I hate what they believe, but I'm glad they're there because they do great things. The kings we see will say, wow, what these guys are capable of, what Daniel is capable of, what he can do, I, I want him around. And so for us as believers, as we realize God has you here for a plan and a purpose, no matter what, no matter what brought you here, he brought you here and he's placed you in positions that you're in. Dig in, engage, see what good you can do. Use your gifts for the good of, of this world, for the good of those around you, to bless people, to help people so that when people look at you, they say, wow, I'm glad that they're here. Do you know what? I don't really agree with them. I know, I know that you know, people in work know I'm an evangelical. And there was a conversation the other day where it's like, oh, I'm not an evangelical like Alad was used. And I was like, oh, okay. That, this is, but people know that about me. But I, I hope that's, and that's fine. They might have all sorts of preconceived ideas about what that is. And they might hate that about me. But they don't hate me, I hope. But I, I think I'm liked. But the point is, do we do good where we are? Do we work hard? Are we known as people? I feel like I've put myself in a bad position here. Some of my colleagues are here. <laughs> um, you know, but do you know what I mean? That we're, where we go and where we are, that we're people of integrity, that we're people of honesty, that we're people who, when there's a difficult situation, we're flexible and we're there and we're able to help. So, we dig in. But... As we've seen, we don't withdraw from culture, we dig in. But there might be times then when we are, are called to, encouraged to, attempted, in fact, to compromise. We see that um, in the text. There was a really fascinating study by uh, a psycholo psychologist called Solomon Ash. And in the 50s, he did uh, a test where he got nine uh, people in a room. And he showed these nine people a card... Uh, there's two cards coming up. One has a, a, just a straight line on it. And they all saw that card. And then they saw the second card with three lines on it marked A, B, and C. And the question was, which line, A, B, or C, is the same as the line on the first card? It's the same size. 
And then they went around the room and they asked each person in turn, which one? Oh, it's, it's B. Oh, it's, it's C. Except for, and here's the twist, eight out of nine people were actors. And they were told to say the wrong line, the same wrong line. It's definitely A. It's A. It's A. It's A. A. What happens when it gets to the ninth person? What will they say? It's quite clearly C. What will they say? Well, 75% of the time, they choose the line that everyone else said. 75% of the time, they will, even though they know it's wrong, afterwards they said, yeah, I knew it wasn't that line. But I didn't want to stand out. I didn't want to be different. I didn't want to look like the person who was so different as everyone else. I wanted to fit in. And it's really interesting peer pressure study. And there's, a, again, I kind of wanted to show it, but it's five minutes long, fascinating video on YouTube where they do a very similar science experiment. They get everyone in a waiting room and they press a buzzer. You might have seen it. And uh, when the buzzer presses, everyone in the waiting room stands up. They're all actors. So they stand up when the buzzer goes, they sit down. Introduce a person who's not an actor, sits down. After three buzzes, she's like sat there and they all buzz, everyone stands up. After three buzzes, she stands up. And then she carries on standing up with every buzz. She's looking around, she doesn't ask anyone what's going on. She just assumes this is what we do. But even better, they slowly, one by one, get everyone out of the room. They each get called into their appointment. And so she's the only person left. Buzzer rings, she stands up. She does it a few times. Even better, a new person comes in, not part of the experiment, sits down. Buzzer rings, she stands up, he's like, what's going on? She says, you stand up when the buzzer rings. So he's told, but then he does it. Then slowly but surely, new people enter the room until there's a room with completely, just like normal people off the street, all standing up when the buzzer rings and sitting down when it stops. No idea why, they're all just doing it because she did it. Fascinating. Fascinating. Peer pressure. It's big. Everyone's doing it. I mean, I think they're extreme examples, but it, it illustrates the point that it's hard for us. We're social beings. We're social creatures. It's good and right for us to want to try and kind of fit in. It's how we maintain social cohesion. It's not wrong. It's just good to know that's what we're like so that we can, when it matters, when it's important, we know, actually, this is a place where I have to stand firm. This is a place where it would be foolish to compromise. This is an area of my life where it would be dangerous for me to fit in, where it would be dangerous for me to go with the flow. And we see that in this text with the issue of food. You see, they accepted a pagan name, a pagan university, and a pagan positions in power. But when it came to eating the king's food, Daniel drew the line. We read in verse 5 that the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And then in verse 8, it says this, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. What's the problem here? Why is this the issue? Well, we don't really know, because it's not that clear in the text. It could be that it's the food that's the problem. It's not kosher, perhaps. 
uh, you, you, you'll know that in the Old Testament uh, and in the Hebrew Jewish religion today, there's strict kosher laws for how uh, food should be prepared. No blood, for example, meat and dairy to be separated. I uh, grew up going to a Jewish school and kind of saw all this firsthand. I actually had a Jewish, our house was built um, by, uh, had for a Jewish family. And so in our house, in our kitchen, we had two sinks, one for dairy and one for meat. That's how you do things. And so the food's not prepared in that way in Babylon, presumably. But uh, if it was uh, just about the food, uh, why is it that they said no to the wine? Because wine doesn't have the same kosher laws. But they say, no, we're not going to have the food or the drink. Perhaps it was about how the food was used. In many cultures, in fact, it was ubiquitous. It was all around in the, in the world, in that culture, in that time, to sacrifice food to idols, to you know, give off a portion of it to the idol and to bless the food in the name of that God, that deity, before bringing it to the table and eating it. Perhaps that was the issue. This food has been dedicated to some other God, and so it would defile us to eat it. But then that would be true of the vegetables that they eat, that they're happy to eat. So that doesn't seem quite likely either. And so I think the key is uh, what it says in verse 5, it's food and wine from the king's table. In other words, it's not what the food is or how it was prepared, but rather whose food it is. It isn't anyone's food, it's the king's. It's his from his table. He's going to be eating it too. They would be sharing a meal. And again, it's a cultural thing that isn't in all of our cultures today, although perhaps in some cultures around the room, it's, you would identify more with this. But the sharing a meal with someone is quite a special thing. It shows a level of relationship that's, that's more than uh, servant or friend or, or even working for someone. It's, it's familiarity. It's, um, it's allegiance. It's, it's, it's being together on heart and mind and in, in unity in a mission. By Eastern standards, to share, a, to, to share a meal was to commit oneself to friendship. It was a covenant significance. It was of covenant. It was, a, it was like, a, like, uh, like saying, I'm, I'm with you. And so, it, again, we're not sure, but it's, a, it's possibly that that's the issue. Daniel wants to say, I, I'll work for you. I'll study your works. I'll, I'll read the literature. I'll be in your culture. I, I, I'll, I'll come every day on time for work. I'll do my absolute best, but we're not friends. We're not in that kind of a relationship. I, I'm not under you. I've got a different allegiance. I'm not allied to you, king. I'm, I've got a different allegiance, and my relationship is with God. My heart relationship is with him. So it feels that that's where they had to draw the line. It would be too much to share the meal with the king. And we need to be discerning and wise ourselves. So that was a, that's a cultural thing going on. And Daniel has to apply wisdom to a cultural situation that's true for his day. It won't be the same for us. It invariably never is. That's why it's tricky. That's why it's difficult. But the wisdom here is, uh, is that we don't draw lines around everything, shunning the whole world and saying no to absolutely everything, going to live in a little commune somewhere out in the woods with all our Christian friends that believe all the same thing as us. That's not what we do. We dig in, but we have to be discerning. Where, is, where we would be led to compromise I don't know whether it's what we watch on TV, where we go 
what films we go to see, what culture we're willing to digest, that's going to be different for different people. That's okay. But do we draw lines? Do we think about it? Do we actually analyze what is this saying about the world today? And do I believe in that narrative? Do I believe that story to be true? And if I do believe, if I don't believe that story to true, to be true, am I gonna hold that up as a masterpiece of cinema, for example? I, I, I always think of films on, at this point, but it could be all sorts of things. Maybe it's a conversation happening at work that we might wanna draw the line at our involvement. Do we wanna say those things about our boss? Do we wanna say those things about a colleague? Do we wanna be in the conversation? Maybe it's knowing ourselves and knowing what our temptations are. Maybe then going out you know, for drinks with friends after work might not be the best choice for us. Do we draw lines? And this is difficult, because as we do so, we'll find ourselves coming up against criticism or opposition. Friends will say, why, why do you draw that line? Why do you make that point? Why do you have that standard? No one else thinks that way. The rest of the world's fine with this. Everyone else in our friendship group does that, this, that, and the other. And we'll find that pressure, but we have to take courage. We notice that Daniel and his friends take courage. They're not scared to compromise because they know a, a reality beyond what the world sees is that God is in charge. And if God is sovereign, if he's in charge, then it's never foolish to follow what he says. If he's in charge, then it's never a bad idea to listen to him. If God is in control, then following his word, trusting in his word, is going to be the, the way to live. It's the way that we're going to prosper and thrive. Even if it looks foolish to everyone else around us, it's the way to go. It's never foolish to serve the living God because he reigns even in exile. And we see this in this chapter very quickly uh, in three places. And I want to point out verses 2, 9, and 7 where the same word in Hebrew, God gave. God gave. It's, it's masked a little in our translations, translated in different ways, but it's the exact same word. God gave. First in verse 2, God gave Jehoiakim the king of Judah, into Belsh uh, Nebuchadnezzar's hands. You look at this situation, you think, oh no, our capital's been ransacked, our king's been taken, killed presumably, and our, our, you know, the, our, the best and brightest are being carried away into exile. God can't be in control here. The, the, uh, the author makes a point to say that the, the precious items, the treasures from the temple are carried away. It's as if to say, your God is weak and pathetic and our God is strong and mighty. Look, we even have his little jewelry bits. We've put them in our temple to serve our God who reigns and rules. That's exactly what you would think and feel. But the author reminds us, no, 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 no. Now, Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he did this, but God gave Jehoiakim. And in the same sentence, it's those treasures as well. God gave them into their hands. And we'll see they come back up again, those treasures at a later date. It's a nice, great foreshadowing. I love this book. It's a proper story. Uh, verse 9, 
Now God had caused, that word caused the, the official, it's gave. God gave the official uh, to show favor and compassion. God gave uh, the Babylon, uh, Daniel and his friends favor in the place that they were at. Favor with what they chose to dig in with, and favor also where they chose to draw the line. Verse 17, uh, we read that God gave them wisdom. So even as they uh, make choices themselves, even as they make a decision to stand firm and to draw lines, God gave them the wisdom on how to do so. So just as we uh, close, as we finish, I can invite the band back up because we're going to take communion and, uh, and sing and worship God in just a moment's time. I want to pray for us as we, as we go from this place, as we go from here and as we engage with the culture, that we will be people who dig in to the world around us and do good, but that we also f- stand firm on our convictions and our faith. As Christians, we've got lines to draw and we've got places where engaging in uh, culture can, can mean compromising. And so we need wisdom and discernment. But above it all, we are a people who trust in a God who rules and reigns. He's in control. And so as we, as we put our trust in him and say, God, help us, give us wisdom, uh, he is uh, faithful and promises to do so. So if we'd like to stand, and I'd like to pray for us. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that you rule and reign. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of heaven and earth. Lord, and at our lowest points and our highest peaks, Lord, you are the God in control. And Lord, we stand on your promises. And we pray, would you help us to do good in the city, do good in the places where you've placed us, do good in our communities, in our families, in our friendships. Lord, to bless those around us, to love them with an unconditional love as you've loved us and as you love them and this world. Lord, and we pray, help us stand firm where it matters, to hold our convictions, uh, Lord, but to be wise and have your wisdom in discernment.